He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, October 30, 2021. What a great month for my podcast. Just hit the 10,000 download mark. Thank you to my listeners. Thank you to great guests like I have today. Professor Aya Gruber from the University of Colorado School of Law in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. She's a feminist. She's a mom, a spouse, part Japanese-American, part Jewish-American, Wait till you hear about her mother and father. Her father, the shark guy, she's a great author. We discuss her book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. We have a good long conversation about her family, about her upbringing in Miami where her dad was a big deal at the University of Miami and out in the Caribbean with his shark project. She's an important Colorado personality, and this kind of in-depth interview was not possible really on the radio, which is interrupted constantly by commercials. I did radio for most of two decades, did a show over at KHA with Dan Kaplis for eight years, talk about him a lot more toward the end of this show, after Professor Aya Gruber, after you hear from our troubadour, what a song he has this week. Nikki's latest song is the title. You will enjoy listening to the Troubadour today. He kicks off this show. But first, I want to tell you about a great opportunity I had just out of nowhere. My name was thrown out there during afternoon drive, and I've heard it now. And it was an offer for me to debate Jenna Ellis. Jenna Ellis, who, while Joe Altman was going on 710 KNUS, spewing his bullshit about Dominion and Eric Coomer. There was Jenna Ellis on KHOW with an open forum to talk Stop This Deal. Same sort of thing, a double-barreled attack. And the more you learn about Donald Trump, you know that everything was coordinated. You talk about a conspiracy. He went to the Justice Department nine times for the authority, and then you got John Eastman involved. But these were... You know, the shock troops and the liars form afterwards in the form of Altman and Ellis, and they got easy interviews, and I didn't like. And I told Dan Kaplis, in fact, I remember it was November 16, 2020, he brought up my name again. I'll play that part at the end of the show, but something about the big lie, and there's Jenna Ellis, and he's giving her a forum, and it started all this bullshit that now most Republicans believe. And it's a litmus test, one, to be a talk radio host, two, to be a candidate anymore. And it's ruining America. And they didn't like what Jen Ellis did. I'm disappointed she got that form and still does. Dan Kaplis is in love with her for whatever reason as a lawyer. I don't know if it's pretend or what it is, but I do know this. Offer, acceptance, contract. Of course, Jen Ellis will have to accept the offer Dan Kaplan's made 
I put it out on Twitter now. I want to debate her. I want to expose the big lie. I want the big lie to fall apart in public discussions and in courtrooms, like the one I watched in courtroom 409 where Joe Altman is being sued. After you hear from the troubadour and then Professor Aya Gruber, God, she's a great guest, I'm going to talk more about what's going on with the big lie in Colorado. I wrote about it in the Colorado Sun, and I'm ready to debate anybody, especially Jen Ellis, if my good buddy Dan Kaplis can't fulfill the offer that he made on Afternoon Drive on 630 KHO. Give this a listen. Here's what I'm leading up to. All of these snipers and snarkers taking their shots at Jenna Ellis, I will pay, I will fund it, I will underwrite it to see you debate Jenna Ellis on a topic of your choice. And all I suggest is that you write your will in, in advance, right? Can you imagine any of these people who snipe at Jenna Ellis debating her publicly on anything? Pick your topic. It's a, yeah, it's she a lot easier wipe to the take floor pot shots. With them. Yeah. But, but I'm, I'm just being honest about it. She would wipe the floor with them. So the challenge is out there. Any of the snipers, the snarkers, the Jenna critics, and again, she and I have had some knockdown dragouts on air where we've disagreed about things. But any of those out there who are calling her names, doubt her abilities as a lawyer or whatever, we will give you this radio show as a forum. We'll make a contribution to the charity of your choice. Let's have the debate. Come on this radio show and debate Jenna on anything you want to. Think we'll have any takers on that, Ryan? Well, I mean, there might be a, a few. Really? Uh, uh, that, okay. Uh, Who do you think would take us up on that? Craig Silverman. Oh, I'd love to have Craig come on. <laughs> could you imagine? And you know Brother Craig. I mean, yeah, could you imagine? so many good memories in this studio. <laughs> Thank you, Dan. I sure hope that happens. Jenna, let's have a good debate, okay? You and me. She, she used to fill in for me back in the day. She didn't like Donald Trump. In fact, she was harder on him than anybody. I liked it. I thought she's got guts, but she's now the president's lawyer, his mouthpiece. She says, Jenna, not only did he win, he won by a landslide. And did you see what Donald Trump wrote to the Wall Street Journal this week? About 18 reasons he got cheated in Pennsylvania. My God. The man is a lunatic, and he needs to be called out. And that's part of what I do on this show. But let me calm down, because our troubadour has written a classic song. What a gift Dave Gunders is to music and to my life. He's my friend, my neighbor. He taught me how to make an apple pie. We made five of them. I was a hit at the office, brought it in. And somehow it turned out just right. I helped pick them. I helped peel them. I helped slice him. I helped the Dave Gunders. He's the troubadour. And you got to go to my YouTube channel. It's one way to listen to the show. I don't do it on video, but this week we have a video of Dave Gunders exploring Cherry Hills Village with me. And instead of apples, he's talking about cattails. And it's funny. Here is our troubadour. Enjoy the show. Gosh. 
It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887, or online at mblawllc.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Nikki's latest song, There Could Be Trouble. Troubadour. Craig. I've got your song in my head. You've done it again. Nikki's latest song is astounding. It's deep on many levels. Thanks, Craig. What's it about from your perspective? And then I will tell you what your song is really about. No. I'd like to, you know, if I may, I'd actually like to reverse this process. And because you have explained to me what you think the song is about. And actually what your your explanation is actually a lot more interesting than mine. So will okay, you, will you say, do us say, the honor? I would say that your song, it, it hits a lot of perfect spots for me because it's enigmatic. It's haunting, thoughtful, the lyric... My heart was open. My fate was sealed. I mean, that's cool. And uh, in a few words, you sum up what love is like, which is kind of a roller coaster. And being with a woman, all the emotions, and it's what makes the world go round. And we love women, and women can have different moods. It's a woman's prerogative to change her mind. And you've been with Nikki a long time, and you feel a storm coming, and you're going to stay with it. And the way you start the song is mild and mellow, some beautiful lyrics. But then there's a crescendo, as with a storm. And then you go back to the nice lullaby of sorts. So it's perfect for our show today because I have Aya Gruber on. She's a professor from the University of Colorado School of Law. She's a feminist. She's an accomplished author. Amazing get for my show. And she talks about feminism and how because everybody agrees you can't hit a woman, that's terrible what used to go on. I believe in women's rights. I want to be a feminist. But she says that she's a feminist and they've gone too far in some respects, sort of like Nikki's last song. There are pendulums in life, and we talk about it with Aya Gruber. So somehow you wrote the perfect song for my podcast. Well, I try. But I don't know how you do it because my podcast is planned in such a short amount of time. When did you write this song? It's on your new hit album titled Troubadour. You tell us how this song became inspired for you. Well, actually, this song is uh, is older. 
Um, yeah, I wrote it when I was in Seattle some years ago, and and I have to also give credit to uh, Nicole Knight who helped out a little bit with this one. So I give I give her credit on the uh, on the CD. It's it's the, in fact it's the only song I think that I've um, done on any of my CDs where I um, where I co-wrote it. Well, your Seattle era. Yes, that was a troubled time, if I recall. Yes. Love gone wrong. You packed your bags. Yes. You headed north, and then you turned left. I I did that. It was my way of of uh, of um, preparing to get a, a divorce from my first wife. Mm-hmm. Wow. So and Nikki, I thought a lot about that because a lot of women's names have two syllables. It could be Karen's latest song. Although you don't want Karen anymore. Sorry, Karen's. <laughs> but it could have been Rachel's. Latest song, Sarah's latest song, Lisa's latest song. Just throw out, I don't know, some female names. Nikki. I mean, it's haunting, but say it would have been Brenda's latest song. I don't know. Just doesn't have the ring, does it? Is that what you chose it for? Because Nikki is her name. Clicky. No, N- Nikki was. She's a songwriter up in Seattle, and and uh, her name's Nicole. Okay. Mm-hmm. Ah, now we're getting to the bottom of it. All these outside influences, the background singer here, I recognize the Gunders and the sweet voice of Sarah. Am I right? Sarah did an awesome job singing. In fact, when I was together with uh, Steve Avidus, who mixed who mixed the album uh, with me, um, he said, wow, this song just came to life when he heard Sarah singing it. It's a great song. It's got all the Gunders elements. Sun, moon, stars, river, sea. And it's a love song. I love it. But you know what? Uh, You enlist Sarah to help with your songs. And you enlisted me, and I'll take credit, and I hope you'll give me credit, for our apple pie. Can you tell everybody what we did before they listened to your song? Oh, we had such a great time. We picked apples mostly from my tree, but some trees in the neighborhood. And uh, um, I'm, I'm happy to tell your audience that you're a pretty darn good baker. No, I was just assisting you, but my God, I'm a good eater, Man. and I like apple pie, and it turned out great. It, you know, I came home, we, we cooked, the, it was the first time I'd made one, and uh, something just, everything just kind of came together. This, these apple pies were phenomenal, and I ate a half a pie. Do you think we can improve on it? No. First of all, we could have vanilla ice cream, that would help. Yes. Okay, that, so yes. that's one. I've been looking at recipes. And I think that we really did make the premier apple pie. And next week, there's an apple pie contest in Douglas County on November 6th, day after your birthday. <laughs> Do you think we have some more apple pies in us this season? I'm, I'm hoping so. I think we found a location where even though your trees are done, there are some neighborhood trees accessible from the street. We're not trespassing. And that makes it all the more special to make apple pies out of neighborhood apples. It does. And I think we have one more beautiful day this, this Saturday yes. to, to go and, and, and harvest them. And, uh, and then we'll, let's, have, let's have a second round. We go walking through our neighborhood and there are apples and they attract us. But never in my life did I think we'd have a discussion about cattails and a big comparison of cattails to dandelions. Tell everybody... Mr. Explorer, Mr. 
Bill Nye, the science guy. Tell us what you found. Well, I am not a botanist, but we were marveling at the cattails and how many seeds they, they kick out uh, at this time of year. And I'm, I'm still amazed. All right, then we have a YouTube up, and you described it, and you said that the tuft of the cattail put, how do you put it, puts a dandelion to shame? Something like that. It does. And yeah. how so? Explain yourself. Well, a dandelion, you know, when you blow on a, on a dandelion that's gone to seed, how many seeds might come off of it? There might be 100, 200 maybe. These cattails, honestly, I couldn't even begin to estimate, but no, it was did. in the many no, thousands. No, you did. All right, I you did estimate. Did. On the YouTube, but for I, posterity, you said I could post it. I did. Everybody can see how handsome you are, and you just throw out numbers. Right? I, I said a quarter of a million seeds. 250,000? Yes. And okay, it sounds I preposterous. Little, I did a little research. It sounds, oh, you did. Yes. It sounds preposterous, but I was amazed. Tell us more about the cattail. Does it have any utility? Well, not that I know of. Oh, come on. Everything well, in nature. I'm sure. Well, you mean that humans use? That, yes. Like for, a, like for um, um, rope or, or, you know, what would you use a reed for? Furniture making? I don't know. Well, those downy seeds, what would you do with that? Pillows? There you go. Or jackets. During World War II, they were used to stuff life jackets. Because uh, part of it floats. You identified it as to have a water source. Native Americans were experts in using every part of the plant. Are you ready for this? Not only for stuffing or the waterproof qualities of the leaf, but as a reliable food source. All parts of the cattail plant from the roots to the flower heads are edible. The rootstock can be boiled, roasted, or dried and ground into a powdery flour. The center of the stalks is thick and starchy, and the flower heads can be roasted for a nutty-tasting treat. Man, you know where you're going to find me tonight around <laughs> dinner time. <laughs> They're hard to pull up. I mean, you can have problems with cattails, but I just think it's fascinating. And if people will go to the Craig Silverman YouTube channel, they will find you explaining what you know. But here, here's the kicker. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Cattails for the pond come with a set of problems you may not want to deal with. Learning how to control cattails is a must, as these hardy plants can take over a pond in a matter of a few years. The reason for this lies in the reproductive capabilities of the cattail. Plants produce those wonderful velvety tails. These are the flower heads. And each head produces around. Tell me, I'm on I'm on the edge of my seat. Three hundred thousand seeds. Darn, that was a pretty good guess. Each equipped with its own little parachute to be born on the wind. On a calm day, these little fluffs will fall straight to the ground around the parent plant and germinate quickly. Thank you for doing that research. And people think you're an exaggerator. You were almost on it, but mm -hmm. you didn't exaggerate. They do put a dandelion to shame. You are a botanist of sorts. You're a troubadour. Way to go, Dave Gunders. And let's have everybody give a listen to Nikki's latest song. Congratulations on a masterpiece. Thank you, Craig.
steps in at midnight, time she loves the best. Keen sense and confidence, sympathy for the rest. I wanna tell her the way I feel. My heart is open, my fate is sealed. Nick is latest song, the rest my senses. Nick is latest song. Got him through my defenses Distant thunder Suddenly near I look for shelter There's none around here She sings of love And contradictions Sings of the dream Never made it alive Looks to the stars For her predictions Somewhere a sun Darkening sky Nikki's latest song There could be trouble Nikki's latest song My heart is beating double Swollen river Crying in the sea Pull of the moon While she's singing to Song. 
Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're to, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Hi, Aya, this is Craig. Thanks a lot for doing my podcast. It is so fun to talk to somebody right after reading their book. Congratulations on your publication, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation in Mass Incarceration. Well, thank you so much. It was um, maybe like a lifetime in the making, and it felt really good to have it done. I bet it did. Let's go back, make sure you're qualified to be in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge, where prominent attorneys come to relax, tell war stories, kick around current events, maybe sell some books. Um, Tell us about uh, you. Where did you grow up and how was it you became a lawyer? Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised in Miami, Florida. My mother um, is Japanese and actually she um, she was in the internment camps in World War II. Her whole immediate family was. And then they um, were in L.A. And um, she, at 19, just on a lark, um, flew to Miami. And um, she met my dad there. He was a marine biologist, a scientist of sharks, actually. And I don't know, like, how did I, I think maybe my mom being interned had something to do with me thinking about the law and thinking about detention and thinking about the government and the power of the government to detain people. And so pretty early on, I got into civil rights and, um, you know, speech and debate, and I was interning at the public defender's office. So I think pretty early on, I wanted to be a lawyer. And then... Did you have any uh, lawyers in your family? 
none. No, my dad studied sharks and my mom, you know, was in the fashion design industry until she got married to my dad and had kids. And then she was a stay at home mom. Um, but yeah, that, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't anything in my family. I know, but what a family you had. I've done a little research, and your dad wasn't just any guy. He was Samuel Gruber, who was the expert on sharks, a Brooklyn Jewish kid. Uh, I read his eulogy um, in Save Our Seas magazine, and what a great picture of your mom and your sister and you on a beach. Do you like that picture? Yeah, I do. It's um, That was taken many years ago, and Funnily enough, the photographer on that Save Our Seas profile went on to um, produce My Octopus Teacher and win an Oscar. We're like, wow, she did the profile on my dad. Um, but yeah, everybody called him Shark Doc, and he started a lab in the Bahamas, and he discovered sharks had color vision. He discovered the patterns of how sharks move. He created the shark specialist group in the World Wildlife Foundation. So this was a man singularly dedicated to sharks. Um, and then he used to say, you know, I, <laughs> this was his kind of dad joke after I became a lawyer. He would say, um, you know, I'm surrounded by sharks and my daughter's a lawyer and she's surrounded by sharks. <laughs> I'm so sorry for him passing away in April of 2019. You, you were working on the book and your parents had the blessing of being married over 50 years. I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you so much. I um, yeah, it was terrible, but you know, in a way, it was really a victory because he got um, lymphoma. He got cancer when he was 38 years old, and the medicine wasn't that great, and he was initially diagnosed. So he had stage four cancer in and out of remission most of his life, and so the fact that he lived, he um. You know, they, they told us when we were little that he would die um, probably sometime when we were in high school. Oh or maybe he would last to college. So Gosh. I remember when I graduated from college, he was like crying because he had seen his kids graduate from college. But he ended up being able to see all of his grandkids. I mean, so when I think about it, it is really sad. But I'm like, wow, I can't. This This man was a fighter till the end. And I was like, I can't believe he lived till 80. I mean, he lived most of his life with, you know, very advanced cancer. Right, but he was, he was Dr. Samuel Gruber, and he came up with some ideas for how to treat himself, and they worked. That's kind of amazing. Isn't that crazy? He had a friend um, who was a science reporter, uh, be, you know, because they, he knew him through the shark industry, and the science reporter said, you know, there's this fludarabine treatment that they're having some success with. I, I remember this was when I was in high school and he, he was the worst. He like was in the hospital for most of my senior year uh. up at Dana-Farber and my mom was there. And so I would just kind of stay alone at the house. And, you know, so he, so he, so his science reporter friend said, oh, you know, they have this fludarabine, which is proving to be pretty effective in childhood leukemia patients. And I'm just wondering whether, you know, they'll give you that as a Hail Mary pass because he had been up at Dana-Farber doing monoclonal antibodies and it was just not working. And I don't know whether it was the combination of the treatments he had been getting for months, like 
putting him in the position to, you know, re- receive the sludarimine, but he, they, but they administered it and he went into remission and it was just like unbelievable. I know, but what a toll that must have taken on you uh, as a daughter. I, I can only imagine, but uh, I mean, we could spend hours on Samuel Gruber. I mean, the name of Dr. Samuel Gruber is amazing, but I can tell special affection for mama. That's the way it works in my house, too. If you ask my two kids, well, let me tell you about my mom. You, your pride in your mom, Marie Harada Gruber, I, it, it shows through in this book. She raised two strong daughters, your sister, a doctor. Why don't you talk about your mama a little bit? Yeah, my mom is amazing, too, although everybody said I like I was my dad's son that he never had. So, um, but yeah, so my mom, you know, I mean, when she was six, they had a farm in what's now Silicon Valley. And I just think, wow, if they still had that farm, I probably wouldn't mean to, to write a book or work. I'd be like having Silicon Valley property. But of course, you know, World War II came and they rounded up Japanese Americans and they put them in these detention camps with barbed wire and you know and so so they had to leave like it was really quick they had to leave and their land was taken and they were shipped out to um wyoming to heart mountain which is like kind of in the middle of nowhere Uh, but i hear now that there's a, a a museum that i really should go and check out um but so you know it was pretty dusty and it was out in the arid plainlands and so they would live in these kind of barrack like things that had oil paper windows so everything was sort of just lit dimly and they lived in you know they lived kind of crowded in these rooms and there were barbed wire fences and the and there were you know towns kids there were white kids and they would come and whenever they see the japanese kids behind the fences they would make fun of them there were communal showers and you know, for a six-year-old, I guess that's not as bad, but she had 13 and 14-year-old female sisters, and they, like, later in life were like, oh, my God, that was the worst part, you know, especially as a young Japanese-American girl in the 40s, right, like, having to be naked in front of a bunch of other people. It was just really bad. Um, And then, you know, my mom also, you know, she was very young, but she also has this memory of my grandfather, they would take them in trucks with guns and they would have them go pick potatoes. And so, you know, that was really bad, but almost worse was when, you know, there was finally court case that released the Yasui case, which, you know, released the Japanese Americans from these basically concentration camps, not death camps, but definitely, you know, military concentration camps. And when they left they had nothing and they all went to these really terrible boarding houses in the la area and that was just um really hard again you know she was very young and her memories are fuzzy but by the time she got out she was like my daughter's age my daughter's 10 so you know she had awareness right um yeah and eventually they settled in east la like what people would call the barrio Um, And then that's where she grew up and she went to fashion design school, um, like in the community college in LA. 
And she just at 19 years old got this job at Verdine's. Um, and Verdine's was like a Macy's at the time in Florida. And they said, yeah, come on down. And she designed cocktail dresses for them for 10 years until she and my dad got married. Oh, my gosh. What a story. And, you know, they say if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And I'm thinking about both sides of your family in World War II. And my parents were kids in Denver back in the day, and it influenced their lives, but not like uh, what your mother went through. Your dad or my dad or my family, if they were over there in Europe, they would have been gone through not just forced labor camps, but eventually death camps. And Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You look back on those times and, you, you know, uh, we'll get to modern times because we don't want to get too heavy right at the start. But, I mean, it, it makes you think. And I know you think a lot about it. Tell, tell everybody where all this good thinking has got you. You went to top schools. Why don't you name them? So I went to Berkeley, and I majored in metaphysical philosophy, which was fun. And then I went to Harvard Law School. Nice. And then you went on to uh, get a position at the best law school in America, not Harvard, but tell everybody where you work. Yes, and I am now, um, actually, I have a title. I am the Ira C. Rothgerber Professor of Constitutional Law and Criminal Justice at University of Colorado Law School. Wow. The parallels in our life are increasing because, of course, I went to see you law school. Mazel tov on that great position. I knew Ira Rothgerber a you little. You did? Yes. Awesome. And I got hired by his firm back in the day. I, I was a prosecutor for... Uh, 16 years. Now, this may bother you. I hope you don't hang up. But <laughs> after eight years, I prosecuted a guy named Frank Rodriguez against the De Denver Public Defender's Office that never loses death penalty cases. But Frank was really a bad guy, and he did terrible things to a woman named Lorraine Martelli. And a Denver jury, yes, Pat Schroeder was her representative. It was liberal, but they did not like what Frank Rodriguez did, and they voted... Death for you, Frank Rodriguez. And then everybody said, well, Craig, you'll never top that. And then I got an offer from Rothgerber. I went over for just a couple months, and I was asked to come back to the DA's office to prosecute the Capitol Hill rapist, Quentin Worthen. But that's another story. So I said goodbye to Rothgerber after two months. You know, thanks for the experience. And then uh, I, I did another eight years. So I'm a bit of a mass incarcerator. Frank Rodriguez died on death row of hepatitis C with his last appeal pending 18 years after his atrocity against uh, Lorraine Martelli. So I'm just telling you a little about my own self and what I learned, my skills at CU Law School, a class that included Bill Ritter, who uh, worked with me in the DA's office, became my boss. It all flows through CU Law School. Thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Do you still want to continue with the interview? Uh, yes, I will. I have I have lots of thoughts on that, but I think um, we won't be able to get to them all. And and just another connection. Well, Abe Ritter, the, I, I guess uh, the governor's son, was my student at CU. 
Yes. So, uh, yes. And I, I danced at Bill and Jeannie's uh, wedding, and he danced at my wedding with Trish, and we're back to being good friends, but we ran against each other in 1996. This way before, well, you were probably growing up in Miami back then. Anyway, uh, it all flows through CU Law School and a little bit through Miami, but uh, I just say that because, and by the way, my wife Trish, she worked in the public defender's office, and that was quite a, a mixed marriage. You know, DA and public defender. It was shocking at the time, especially after Frank Rodriguez. I just bring that up because I do like public defenders, but some of them don't like me. You know what I mean? It's uh, the true believers, and sometimes they view all former prosecutors. Hell, I've been a criminal defense attorney a lot longer now. Um, but let's talk about it because you became a public defender. Let's talk about that experience. And did you ever think maybe I want to be a prosecutor? No, I really never did. I, I guess you could file me under true believer. Although, you know, I do understand prosecutors when you have really heinous cases, um, and you have the option for the highest penalty, which is the death penalty. If you look at it from a individual perspective, you're like, oh, yeah, well, that's, you know, like Dylan Ruth, you know, the the shooter of the of the black church, you know, like this is the person the death penalty was made for. I, you know, I get that. But I, you know, and I think a lot of defense, well, I, maybe not a lot of defenders, but I think many defenders, um, not not maybe all of them think more systemically like, yeah, but we know the patterns don't work out you know, in, in the larger scheme of things as the worst of the worst. And like these studies that came out, you know, pretty clearly show that the victim being white, for example, is a more relevant predictor of a defendant getting the death penalty than even the defendant having a prior murder. Was that, was that McCluskey v. George? Dr. McCluskey v. Kemp, yeah. Yeah, but see, isn't guys. that cool? I can remember that from back in the Very day. Very good, like, yes. I'm no zealot for capital punishment. I don't want to get too distracted on it because it's not even relevant in Colorado anymore since they no. got rid of it. Um, no. We still have a federal death penalty, but someday we might debate that. All I ever defended was... I did one death penalty case. It happened to result in a unanimous verdict of death. And I learned about the subject, and it's a difficult one. And I think it's awful for the state and its power to have to put somebody to death. That's awful to think about. But it's awful for the state to put somebody in a cage and lock them up, sometimes for a really long time. And that's more the subject of your book. And I've thought a lot about this, Aya, because I was a bit of a mass incarcerator. And some people did crimes where I bet you would agree. No, they can't. They can't be out, given what they did, including Frank Rodriguez. But right. the bottom line is, um, what is the utility of locking somebody up? And if you do lock them up, what's the utility of you know, five years as opposed to five months as opposed to 50 years. You've thought a lot about this. And to me, it's part of our system that doesn't work because people who go to prison almost always come out worse. So we got to figure this out. And you've dedicated your career to doing this. And it's it's part of the thesis of your book. And you came to 
kind of a startling conclusion. I don't want to give it away, spoiler alert, but you're a feminist, and you think that feminism had its role in all this. Yeah, and I and not only that, but I think that feminism had, you know, and I am a feminist, but I think the feminist, the mainstream powerful feminist movement had a larger role in building this sort of really mass incarceration system that everybody agrees is very racially biased, entirely too large, you know, and, and is increasingly become a bipartisan issue. Um, I, I think that that the fem, that the powerful American feminist movement had a bigger role in that than people think. Um, so, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, wait, you know, sex crimes and all this and um, crimes against women, they're just a drop in the bucket of mass incarceration. So why are you sort of picking on that? And first of all, they're really not. If you look at the incarcerated population in state and federal prisons of people who've been charged with sex crimes um, and, the, you know, the the sort of very, very harsh sex offender system is feminism had a huge contributory role in it. Um, and they can range from really, really bad to not as bad or whatever. But there is large a segment of the overall prison population than all drug offenders. So this isn't this isn't a drop in the bucket. And also, I think, you know, what was the amazing part of the feminist movement is the ability to unite the right who, you know, like in the 80s and 90s especially, conservatives are very tough on crime. Some still are, a lot still are, but also the left who were the natural, I think, you know, progressives who were the natural group that you would look to, to say, okay, like we've got to rethink this mass incarceration thing. Well, there were a lot of hard stops on the left because they were like, well, if we don't have the system we have now, we're going to have, you know, wife beaters and, and rapists out and we, you know, progressives are feminists and we can't, we can't deal with that. Right. Like, so I think there were a lot of ways in which feminism contributed. I don't think it was the main, even the main contributor, but, but more than we think. And I also think it's a persistent contributor. Like today, you know, I get a lot of students who are like, I really think that mass incarceration is bad. I, I, I really, you know, want to be a reformer. I'm even a prison abolitionist, la, la, la. But what about abusers? What about people who offend against women or other minorities? And so, you know, they really do kind of question their own feelings that the system, the mass incarceration system is more costly than beneficial, um, but they really question it because of these, what they believe are feminist concerns. Right. I've, I'm old enough to have seen pendulum swings that are unbelievable. While I was third year at Boulder, Bill Ritter, Karen Steinhauser, Michael Cohen, Velveeta Golightly, um, and I were all interns at the Denver DA's office. And back then, Sex assault on a child had no mandatory sentence aspect. The most you could get was uh, two to four years if the judge wanted to send you to prison. And first-degree murder usually resulted in somebody doing so-called life, but it really meant he was eligible for parole after 10 years. And then once we started in uh, 
It's our 40th anniversary right now, October 1981. Um, things started to change, and you chronicle it in your book because Ronald Reagan was elected and there was a tough-on-crime attitude. And then the pendulum swung kind of through the middle, and then as we went along through the 90s, uh, it swung to really severe sentencing where sex offenders are essentially done for life, either in jail or under supervision. And and now it's swinging back, but you know the perspective of time? You chronicle it in your book. Do you think it's swinging back now? And what is the right medium? I mean, I don't think on sex offenders, if you look at Colorado's indeterminate life sentencing regime and the Lifetime Supervision Act that was passed back in the 90s, um, you know, as long as that exists, you're going to have sex offenders, you know, um, ranging from really egregious repeat opportunistic offenders to college students who did wrong, but, you know, is something that you might think of as like something that they could learn. They're very young. Um, you know, it involved a lot of intoxication on both parties. They're going to jail for life, right? So it's it's really a range of behavior that now gets in the system that's dependent on a, you know, like quasi-therapeutic model. Oh, well, but we'll give them treatment. And if they're treated, well, then they can get out before life. And there's been amazing work done in the past few years by public defenders and other advocates to actually get some of these Lifetime Supervision Act people out of jail. But like the reality of it is backlogs, lack of providers, they're not getting this so-called treatment, which, you know, um, the therapeutic value, I don't know. Um, and so we have, you know, a whole range of people doing an enormous amount of time in jail at um, taxpayers' expense. And there's no evidence that they're all going to be high, you know, like recidivists and dangerous to society. In fact, sex offenders, you know, be, and, and it's partially because it's such a broad category of behaviors, offend, reoffend at a lower rate. No, than, time out. Let me stop you just yeah. a little bit because I agree mm -hmm. with you on date rape cases. These are tough cases, you know, people drinking, and I, I, I never like prosecuting those cases because. To me, if I had a reasonable doubt, and often in those cases there is, then I, I ethically was bound to dismiss the case. But I did love going after violent serial sex offenders. And some men out there are turned on by the wrong thing. What should I have done with Quentin Wortham, who had broken into so many uh, single successful women's homes in Capitol Hill in the 80s that they formed a task force to find him and women were moving out of the area and eventually got caught by the FBI and we charged him with seven rapes in Capitol Hill, but we think he committed many dozens of them because he was good at it. He was a cat burglar. He'd get the woman from behind. He'd make them shower afterwards. And so what's the right penalty for a guy like that? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't think anybody in their right mind is going to say, okay, here you have a serial rapist out there forcibly raping people um, and doing it over and over again. And this person is a danger to society. Like, this person is the poster child for why you would want 
even up to lifetime incapacitation unless you were really, really sure that they were changed, right? Yeah, I get that. But my, I guess my complaint is that kind of a sex offender, that kind of a person charged with a sex offense is the exception, not the rule. And this infrastructure that came about in part because of feminism and in part because of, you know, very high profile child kidnapping, sexual assault and murder cases, the model is really um, not limited in any way to that kind of, you know, worst of the worst offender. It's very, very broad. That's interesting because I hearken back and Beth McCann, when I broke in, in 81 and mm-hmm. intern before she was a district court deputy so i know her pretty well and i get the sense in denver because i defend people that still you have to there would be more violent forced rapes that you would approve than date rapes filed you, I, I was in complaints in fact i sat there with bill ritter six months at a time and we turned down lots of cases i aware you know, it's he said, she said. So maybe it's changed in other jurisdictions. I know Michael Doherty up in Boulder. Maybe he does more. Am I missing something? I, I think in most big cities, we have more than mm-hmm. enough real violent rape cases without focusing on these, uh, oh, we had a date, um, you know, like that Ansari case that you chronicle in your book so well. I mean, isn't that where experienced prosecutors need to step in and say, let's not get the criminal justice system involved here? I don't think you can really do that because if you do that, if you say, okay, right, like even if the person gets convicted, um, you know, you have a Brock Turner-like case where where he, you know, did something really bad. Remind everybody about Brock Turner. So the Brock Brock Turner... um, was, you know, it made the headlines because here's a prominent Stanford athlete. He was a swimmer at this elite school. And it was, you know, a woman from the area who they went to a party together. And they basically went outside and she passed out um, outside behind a dumpster. And I think the imagery was really striking to people. And he assaulted her, right? Like he penetrated her with, I think with his finger, but anyway, he was sexually assaulting her. And then two Swedish students on bikes who were like biking by were like, what are you doing? And he ran and they chased him down and restrained him until uh, the police came. And, um, you know, and it made the newspapers, it was all sensational. And fast forward to the trial, he loses a trial. You know, he con- he contests um, mens rea, basically uh, intent. He basically says, you know, I thought that she was, you know, awake and consenting. Like that was his, you know, idea. Right. And she, you know, and she couldn't remember what happened because she was obviously passed out. Um, but, you know, it's possible for a person to be blackout and not passed out. So she couldn't contest his side of the story. But... You know, you had the bikers, you had all the circumstantial evidence, and the jury didn't believe it, and they convicted him. Now, this goes to probation, the probation department. No, no, to, it, time yeah. out. I would have voted guilty, given your description. I remember following it and thinking, yeah, that guy's guilty. I would have filed that case. How about you? 
Um, I, you know, it's hard for me to think of filing a case because I don't file any right, cases. But, okay, picture yourself um, on the jury. But if I was jury. a person who filed a case, no, but if it, I was what, on the if you if were on the, the jury, jury, would you have convicted Brock Turner? Uh, probably. I mean, probably. You know, I, I, you know, I didn't follow every single moment of the jury, but it seemed like there was sufficient evidence to right. to prove that she was incapacitated beyond a reasonable doubt at the time of of the sex offense. So yeah, I mean, I, he I, like in my mind, there's no question he did it, right? But that's not what that's that's not where the outrage came. Where the outrage came was at a fairly, you know, believe it or not, run-of-the-mill way they do cases in Santa Clara County, which you're probably familiar with, is that the a probation officer, like, interviews everybody involved and looks at the past history right. of the defendant and blah, 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 blah. report. And prepares the pre-sentence report, right. And that has some statutory sort of guideline factors that you have to take into account, blah, blah, blah. And so in the end of all of this, the probation officer recommended a six-month jail sentence, right? And then, you know, in California at the time, they had lifetime sex offender registration and, um, you know, also long term of probation, right. I think like 15 years. So it might like I, you know, people thought it was a light sentence because it was in enough jail time. Um, but so the reason the probation officer did it was because of the youth, his intoxication and his lack of a criminal record. And all those things are kind of these statutory factors, like mitigating factors that you take into account when preparing the report, but also the remorse, the letters he wrote and stuff. And then the fact that um, Chanel Miller, who's now written a book about her experience, um, you know, said what, at what's the time, it called? I don't remember. The Chanel Miller's is Know My Name. Okay. And for, you know, when I was writing my book, um, her identity was still Emily Doe, right? Um, and you didn't know much about her. But as like the book was in processing, her book came out and then, you know, I had already written the book and, you know, she was Chanel Miller. And some people are like, why do you call him Brock Turner and call her Emily Doe? Because at the time, you know, her identity was still a secret. Um, but anyway, yeah, she wrote a book about it. But so, you know, according to the probation officer, she, um, you know, she said, I, I don't want him to rot in jail. You know, like she was kind of herself, you know, a young progressive and incarceration critic, right? Right. Um, but like between the pre-sentencing report and, or maybe, you know, I don't know why, you know, but it seemed like she was not satisfied with that six month recommendation. And she's a writer. I mean, her book has, you know, received a lot of acclaim. That's what she was doing. So she wrote this victim impact statement that was just, you know, very, um, eloquent and raw and emotional and well done. It was, I mean, it's actually a piece of literature and she looked directly at Brock Turner and, you know, kind of said the famous words. Now you don't know me, but you've been inside me. Right. And that's how she started the victim impact statement. And it was just very, very powerful. And when the judge followed the six-month recommendation of probation, um, there was outrage. 
there was outrage that after that kind of a victim impact statement that, you know, he only got six months. And um, there was an immediate sort of worldwide campaign against this judge. And this judge was removed from office. He was voted a recall. Millions of dollars went into this recall effort to remove this judge from office, you know, on the basis that he doesn't take rape seriously because he followed the recommendation of probation. So this was a very, this is a very, very prominent case. Parliaments, in, in parliaments around the world, women legislatures went on the floor of parliaments, the floor of Congress, on TV, and performed this victim impact statement. And so, you know, a prosecutor now looking at a case where, you know, um, there's an allegation that the drunk male college student, usually male, um, offended against a, a drunk to the level of incapacitated female student. I, you know, I don't think it's an option just to say I'm not going to prosecute that. People are too, people are too upset about it. And, you know, maybe with good reason that it would just be dismissed altogether. But, you I mean, know, but you're describing yeah. some extraordinary elements to that case. And what he was a varsity swimmer, if I remember right. Yeah, but, but what but, does but, that and matter? And you can judge, have a non-swimmer. Didn't the judge say something that they used, you know, this was only... I'm saying most cases don't get this degree of attention, but your point is a good one. The prosecutors live in fear of bad headlines. Uh, so do judges. Yeah. The one thing they don't want is judge goes soft on guy who just killed 12 people. It's like, oh, my God. I, I know some situations even in Boulder like that where, oops, we gave the wrong guy the wrong deal. But – yeah, but what if you, but here's, here's something to think about. And this is the defender side of me coming out. If a judge gives the wrong guy the wrong deal or releases this guy who, um, you know, who, you know, engaged in domestic violence and, you know, the intimate partner, the, the you know, usually the woman, but not, not always says, um, actually, you know what, I don't want to press charges or I want you to lift this stay away order or whatever. And this guy ends up like beating her up really badly or God forbid killing her. Right. You know, this judge is going to get like just reamed. He might be removed. He's not going to get voted for. Like that's the judges, every judges and prosecutors, you know, maybe. I don't know. I can't speak of No, it is a prosecutor's nightmare. Yeah. Silverman gives a lenient deal and then the guy right. kills five right. people. Leniency right. that leads to, and which, you know, again, like if you look at the world of people released and the world of people that go on to do like horrific, horrific crimes, it's 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 a it's a smaller percent. It's not like eighty percent. It's like you know, maybe five ten percent. But here's the thing. Here's the point I'm getting at. If the prosecutors and the judges go too harsh and they're pretrial detaining, you know, and remember, pretrial detention is innocent people. They're pretrial detaining people who wouldn't have done anything when they were out and and much less than some heinous murder crime well this is a disappeared population they're never going to get flack for being for detaining right uh because you can't prove a negative you can't prove that this person if they were out wouldn't have done it so there's no you know there's very little downside risk to being overly incarcerating 
to like when in doubt, just give more because, you know, it's going to protect me. And there's every risk for being too lenient. And that has to do with like the way we think about criminal law, the way we think about who's in these, you know, pretty horrific prison systems and, you know, the way the media covers them. Like all the flack is for when leniency leads to bad results. Right. And very little of the flack is for when overpunitiveness leads to bad results. Like it's it's just like that's never a cost in the forefront of people's minds. I totally agree with you. And I've been on both sides of this, represented a lot of guys accused who have to spend long times in jail before they even get a hearing. They have to vacate the house. Meanwhile, just like your story about Jamal and Brittany, it's powerful. They're a 19-year-old and an 18-year-old. You're a public defender in D.C. You get approached by Brittany who says, hey, I want my, uh, my man Jamal to come home. And you say, well, I represent him. And then you get accused of ethics violations. I've been there. I've seen this play out a million times. But the bottom line is Brittany, in the end, has to really be deprived of the man she wants to be with over what was a relatively minor incident. And in the case of Brock Turner, all that followed, and the point of your book is these outcomes that aren't necessarily good are championed by feminism. And your point is, hey, let's take another look at what we're doing here. Yeah. So let me just say one thing about about Brock Turner. Like when they asked Chanel Miller you know, well, what did you want? Like, it, this was so outrageous that it, it outraged the world. And the judge, who pretty much the prosecutors and the defense attorney said was a really fair and good judge, was not only removed from office, but now he's like persona non grata in the world. And people think he's racist and pro athlete and all this. And, you know, like, right. to me, like, all of that was nonsense, sort of just like channeling of some outrage against rape culture or like, you know, college students, especially like male college students, you know, having really antiquated views about sex and about what's appropriate. I get that. There could be a lot of outrage, but he channeled it on this judge. Um, And so, you know, fine, that, that happened there. But what happens here in Colorado is, and in California is if you're a Brock Turner now, or even less than a Brock Turner, like we've had several cases out of Boulder now where, you know, it was an incapacitatedly, arguably drunk college student and another drunk college student who had sex. And now it is an indeterminate life sentence. It's not two years. It's life. Right. So you're you're talking about the former Fairview quarterback. No, this was a recent one from um, CU. I, I forget his name, but it was a um, it was a nineteen-year-old uh, sophomore, and they and he and his date at one of CU's sorority parties. Oh. And then the allegation was that like he took her back to um, you know his room, and she was too drunk to consent when they had sex. Um, he gets convicted. And, you know, the judge says, frankly, like, I don't think life is appropriate in this case, but I can't do anything but life because that is, that's the, you know, Lifetime Sup- uh, right. Supervision Act, right? So, I mean, these are concepts. And in California, they took the charge that it wasn't the judge that charged Brock Turner 
with, you know, a probation eligible charge, it was a prosecutor's. Right. And they took this charge and made it a three-year mandatory minimum. Um, so, like, it would have been, so if Brock Turner was trying to do it, it would have been three years. And Chanel, you know, claims that too, right? Like, so we always compensate to the more and more and more time, right? And, of course, there are going to be egregious cases and very serious cases where you're like, yeah, three, three years sounds about right or even more. Um, but like, if you look at like the world of conduct, the world of recidivism risk and how we sort of have been uniformly reacting is to just broaden, broaden, broaden and sweeping into these mandatory minimums. And yeah, maybe three years doesn't sound long to some people. You know, a lot of people have never been in jail for one day. So, you know, you can imagine that three years or six months or, you know, is a slap on the risk you know, a lot of people haven't been in a lifetime supervision situation where you can't live anywhere, you know, but the train tracks, yeah, that seems like a slap on the wrist. If you've never really been close to it, you know, you just imagine, right. oh, I just spent but, three but, years. But again, and maybe it's because I prosecuted so many serial sex offenders. And yeah. part of the problem is that all victims react differently. And they're all correct in their reaction. We see how people react to trauma and grief. Some people deal with it in different ways. The Washington Park rapist who raped everybody around Washington Park, there were like six victims, and one of them, he had just been kind of a peeping Tom, and we caught him doing that sort of thing, but she felt violated, sort of like you described uh, at the start. She didn't want to be observed naked like that. And she really kind of fell apart over that. Meanwhile, a young girl who was going to East High School, who he broke into her basement uh, room, and she got raped every which way. He cut her with a knife. She ended up testifying against him. She went on Channel 4 to talk about it. She ended up going to Harvard Law School and becoming a New York City prosecutor. So I'm just saying that every victim reacts differently, and... Uh, is it really fair to uh, the perpetrator that, you know, it's so dependent on really the psychological makeup uh, of a single person? Yeah. Um, so, again, you know, like, I don't think, and let me just be clear, you know, for your listeners, uh, rape is really bad. It's a harm. You know, sexually violating people is a harm you know, sometimes it's deliberate. There are people who want to go out and inflict pain on people and they love that. And they're, you know, sort of high recidivist, extremely dangerous people. And you would say, okay, you know, that's the high sentencing regime is appropriate for them. There are other people who maybe engage in conduct, misconduct that's more on the line or, you know, arguably less harmful, but you just have like a victim that, is, um, you know, really upset and should that dictate the case? Right. Right. I think like everybody can agree. Serial rapists are high recidivists. They're very dangerous. They engage in extremely harmful conduct and like nobody's going to cry if they're subject to a harsh system, you know, but it makes me wonder then why like we're not, why there's so many untested uh, rape kits, because when they finally get around to testing these old rape kits with DNA that just sit languishing, a lot of the times they find the serial killer, uh, sorry, the serial rapist. Uh, let's move on a little bit from Brock Turner. And, and I think kind of the different 
Doesn't the whole criminal justice system come down to how many guilty people do we want to let go free to make sure an innocent person is not convicted? And what would your answer be to that? Yeah, so I think it's not just that, you know, sort of Blackstone rule. We err on the side. You know, the reason we have beyond a reasonable doubt is that we err on the side of releasing. I mean, that is a principle in criminal law, but it's almost completely irrelevant given how many cases resolved by plea bargaining. You know, like there is no jury to say beyond a reasonable doubt. It's just, all right, you're charged with all this stuff. You're looking at this amount of time. And now, you know, we're going to bargain and you're going to do some time. And, it, you know, and that that's how it goes down a lot of times. Now, it sounds no, like you've for, had... for a defense attorney, but for a prosecutor making a charging decision, this goes through your mind. Right. I mean, and so one would hope that prosecutors are saying, you know, can I prove all six of these charges, you know, based on one incident, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, or am I trying to bring them because I don't want to take this tr- case to trial. It's a waste of resources. I want to induce a plea. Or do I, do I really think this is how to pursue justice? And one would hope that prosecutors say, like, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of exculpatory evidence here. I think we've got them. I don't think there's reasonable doubt in this case. Um, and I'm charging because I think it's the appropriate charging. You know, like, I hope that happens. I, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of evidence that that doesn't happen. And, and it's, you know, and it becomes this machine, right? And so a lot of it is like, okay, we have these criminal codes that criminalize almost everything. You can imagine a way to charge anyone with anything at this point. And, you know, who are the people that are initially even getting in the system for the prosecutor to look at to make a charging decision? You know, it's who the police are interfacing with. And that's not a neutral thing. Police are interfacing with people in neighborhoods they're deployed. And studies show that neighborhoods where police are deployed are disproportionately in neighborhoods of color. So, yeah, I get it. Like serial rapists and stuff. These are important cases. You've taken them to trial. All these. the, The way the system appears on TV is those cases. The way the system doesn't appear on TV is you go, you know, you know, you're a police officer, you're walking the beat in, uh, you know, marginalized neighborhood, you're going up to some kids, the kids try to flee, you run up to the kids, you get the kids, they go and they got disorderlies, they plead, now they have a record, next time they come up, the record means they do some time, and it goes like that. And I so, totally agree. Yeah. And they get trapped yeah. in the system, and police yeah. have incredible discretion, so do yeah. prosecutors. Yep. And so some prosecutors, or at least, you know, some are saying, and I did talk to the Boulder DAs about that, that they're trying different programs, you know, like full well knowing that there are so many misdemeanor and low-level felonies and crimes you can charge people with that's basically based on how they interface with police on any given day, right? Um, That they're trying to, you know, have diversions for this or special programs for that or no charging policies for this or that. So it's very interesting to me, just to bring it back to feminism, that this idea of, you know, kind of saying, yeah, you could arrest for a billion things, but we just think it's bad policy to arrest and prosecute this. That kind of used to be the way that police looked at domestic violence misdemeanors. Mm -hmm. And... um, 
you know, the, the police even had some community policing policies back in the 70s where they'd look at other things like, you know, fights on the street and if they could work it out between the parties short of an arrest, that's what they wanted to do. And other things like, you know, you don't have to arrest whenever there's probable cause. You know, there's a lot of discretion here. You have discretion not to arrest and you could make some good policy decisions. But with the domestic violence movement and understandably, you know, and I even believe this, like when I was like a budding public defender, I worried more, you know, about representing a man charged with misdemeanor DV than representing somebody charged with like serious violent crime. Because to me, the DV part was about women's equality. So the the narrative at the time back in the 70s was, you know, police are often not making arrests in these domestic violence cases. And the reason they're not making arrests is because they all think abuse is okay because they're men and they like it and they're probably abusers themselves. I mean, you know. No, I think that's that, true. We used to call that, it the yeah. good old boys system. Yeah. And that it that was true. That was true of some police officers. Um, but, you know, like there are police officers who engage in violence in their homes, who engage in various kinds of illegal behavior, speeding and all this stuff. And they got no problem arresting somebody else for that. Right. Like, so, I mean, it's yes, it's part of what was going on, but it wasn't the full story of what was going on. The full story of what was going on is, yes, there were these sexist cops who was like, oh, you're a wife beater. And I think that's great. But when they actually um, interviewed, did this like large scale interview of police officers to prepare this report in the late 70s, um, you know, they some were like that, some were like that's private business. You know, we don't want to get involved. Some were like, well, we think an arrest is going to harm the woman financially because the man's going to go to jail for a few days and he could lose his job. And, you know, you had more economic dependence back in the 70s. Um, but you still have a lot of economic dependence in, in certain communities and certain marginalized areas now. But um, the number one reason was, well, the victim said we didn't, she didn't want an arrest. She wanted something else. And so like, that was only part of the story, that we need to force police to arrest and prosecutors to prosecute because they're all sexists, right? And that we can't trust them to do the right thing. Some of them were actually assessing the situation from, you know, a different perspective. And right. yeah, it's true. Police really didn't like domestic violence cases. They were dangerous to them. There was a heightened level of danger to police officers. And also, you know, that they'd see the same thing over and over again, whether they made an arrest. And they just didn't, you know, they wanted to be the people who went in, like saved the woman and the woman would say, Oh, thank you so much. And reality did go in there and the whole thing was a mess and the woman's yelling at them. Right. Um, so it was just a very complicated story, but the flattened narrative of like these really sexist pro abuse cops kind of came to the forefront. And so then the solution was, well, we just got to arrest and prosecute everybody. And not only did that put an end to sort of, the use of discretion in these DV cases that are very, very complicated, but also programs to use more discretion just in other misdemeanor cases. So this idea that cops use all their discretion 
not to arrest in you know sexist ways and now you could even say racist ways or whatever didn't lead to like sort of a uniform policy that could really think through like you know what the steps should be but to a uniform policy of arrest and prosecute right and you know yeah and and a lot of women don't know that as soon as they dial 911 it's over i mean somebody's probably going to go to jail even if you hang out and it's it's amazing how many families get destroyed in the process in the meantime there are domestic violence murders and i prosecuted those as well and it's tough to tell and we used to trust cops and prosecutors but when you put the word mandatory on it that that removes that discretion and everybody gets thrown in the in the hole in the same barrel of rotten apples well again this is criminal law logic that i think you know is what we're talking about before with the pretrial release like everybody imagines that when a domestic homicide occurs it's because lack of law enforcement it's because there wasn't enough arrest prosecution and jail inserted into that relationship and nobody considers that you know going through these processes might aggravate the chances of a domestic homicide um and so it's just really interesting to me because there was this 2007 study that actually looked at for example california domestic homicides before and after mandatory laws and then intra-jurisdictional those areas without mandatory arrests and those with and they found a robust relationship between these mandatory arrest policies and increases in domestic homicides. And here was the theory that you've got, you know, it, it, so the level of like violence, coercion of control and stuff that goes on in relationships and especially, you know, men to women, which is terrible, a terrible thing. I think it's something that we need to intervene in, but that amount is large. And the amount of domestic homicides that occur are small. So if you were thinking of the Venn diagram, it'd be like a big circle and a little circle. And um, not altogether totally predictable, right? Uh, exhibit A, Gabby Petito, like not completely predictable when they started van life. And again, he's, you know, he's not a suspect he yet. He looked like a bad guy to me. I, <laughs> yeah, I would not go on a van trip him. with that dude. I, I mean, you know, there's no, but, but, right, like this wasn't a case where it would be sort of predictable from the history of violence that this would be a domestic homicide. So you have a, a, a rare phenomenon, but this was the idea. This was the, the idea in the study, and I think there's really But a lot of people are talking about that he should have been arrested in Moab, and that's... Right, under the presumption that arrest would have prevented it. This right. is always what we do. We take the homicide, and then we look back, and we say, if there wasn't an arrest at some point, um, that's why, that's why there was a homicide. So we need to pump up, pump up, pump up. We don't take a domestic homicide and look back and say, if there was an arrest at some point, this led to the domestic homicide. But in fact, the empirical studies, um, seem to show that. And the theory is that with the mandatory arrest, you know, a lot of women, and again, this is fairly unpredictable, but a lot of women call the police for violence interruption. They are getting beaten or getting coercively controlled, and they need help in the moment. And when the police come and it triggers this penal machine that's made people deportable, that's led to the women, you know, also having like abuse and neglect charges that made the man lose their job, that just kind of 
made things worse, and it was against the woman's will, she'll just stop calling the police. And maybe the one time she doesn't call the police will be that time that it escalates into a homicide. And, and there could have been violence interruption there, but she had such a bad experience with the, well, what the system imposed on them that she's not going to call them. And, and I find that to be compelling because the same study looked at um, child abuse and homicide. And many of the child abuse calls are made by third party. And it's not something that, that um, children had a, you know, control over. Right. So mandatory child abuse reporting didn't affect homicide rates, didn't increase homicide rates the way that mandatory arrest for domestic violence did because it didn't affect, you know, the families the way that they wouldn't call the police in a really bad child abuse incident, whereas mandatory arrest did. So it made sense to me that actually when you look at these policies that were pushed through at a time um, on the basis of women are dying. And in the 70s, the domestic homicides were roughly equally split between men and women, or at least women, I think women accounted for, for yeah, almost like 40-something percent back in the 70s. And now it's like totally changed. It's, um, you know, it's, there are more and it's disproportionately men. And But back then, like the idea was we need these mandatory arrests to, to stop homicides. We need to, yeah, we need to protect the women. And and I think, right. And and so many laws are, oh, we need to protect the women. And And it it didn't protect the women. I I understand. I I read your book and I recommend it because it's filled with this data. And I like the tension you feel because you're a feminist and yet you think feminism has gone wrong. And you even get to the kind of radical statement. That, hey, you know what? Feminism should not cooperate with the criminal justice system because it's not working well. And that's that's pretty interesting. Don't you say that in your book? That's right. I mean, you know, now your audience and prosecutors, they don't have the same orientation as a lot of feminists, frankly, and young feminists. They are anti-incarceration. They're totally there with the structural critique of incarceration, which we've debated a little bit here, but that on balance, it's not so good at pre- preventing crime. They say, like, for example, in New York City, there was this precipitous crime decline, and maybe like 10% of it was that, you know, they were jailing lots of people. Um, but th- I mean, there's so many other factors that led to the crime decline, changing demographics, economics, even like lead pain abatement, there, like so many things. But like, you know, feminists are on board with that. They're like, yes, we think mass incarceration is a human rights disaster. We're a worldwide outlier. It's like um, government out of control and it's racist, right? But when it comes, so they see the systemic and structural critique, but when it comes to crimes against women, they still have this real, like, like I can identify the one person, right, who needs that tough system. So if I can give you a description of the one person, uh, you know, you can have this big system. But that's no different than kind of just tough on crime logic anyway. Like, let's look at the, the most horrible person and imagine that everybody is like that 
and and that's how the criminal system is working and we know that the criminal system isn't working that way like it's working like that plea bargaining way and everything else so feminists are still doing that and it's so curious to me that they're so on board with the black lives matter and the structural critique and even the defund stuff but they're like but not for these crimes in, and and under this theory that kind of defies their own logic which is that if you can work back from the existence of, of private violence or crime and just identify places where criminal law wasn't there and say yep that was it right and like they don't they don't believe that for anything else but crimes against women and it's very weird because when you dig down into it a lot of these crimes are relational they're family crimes and it's actually more complicated than a run-of-the-mill street crime if somebody snatches my purse like and you put that person in jail right i'm probably not going to be affected by it um they are their family their children the community there's going to be a lot of ripple effects but probably not for me whereas if you put somebody's life partner or economic dependence or, or parent of their children in jail that's going to affect the woman so it's just really curious to me that these crime logics for feminists are kicking in at the precise in the precise types of cases where there's a potential for the victim to be harmed by the processing of the defendant right so I just was so curious about that because I believed that too. You know, I believe despite all my public defenderness, and again, I, I was interning at the public defender since I was 15, the, the Miami-Dade County public defender, I started interning there. And despite all my public defenderness, I did believe that the measure of women's subordination was this sort of private violence, um, you know, from individual men and the measure of progress was jailing them and that we could sort of achieve women's equality one incarcerated man at a time this was like ingrained in my public defender he had and so this book was really um sort of going back and saying like why did i believe that and is it true and like has what has criminal law done for feminism and what has feminism done for the criminal system right and so uh, so it's just very interesting because that is an audience i'm i'm speaking to right now people who are already on board um with the mass incarceration critique but who just have this carve out for certain crimes you're swimming against the tide your dad would be proud of you you're like a shark moving in but you have facts and figures and you made me think about a lot of things one, I'd like to be a feminist. I don't know if men qualify, but I had a really smart sister who became a board-certified veterinarian, and then she was a role model to me. Then I went to CU Law School where Emily Calhoun and Mimi Wesson and a bunch of female professors influenced me. And the DA's office, Brooke Wanneke, who is a blessed memory, she was a mentor of Ritter, me, everybody who came through then. I told you I worked with Beth McCann, and a lot of judges I remember most were female judges, Huffnagel and Peterson among them. So Connie Peterson being on that Frank Rodriguez death penalty case. So can I be a feminist? Um, sure. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think it's important to have powerful women, um, you know, as as influences. And I would say that Mimi 
was certainly a feminist. And, you know, I remember, and, and Emily, um, Emily, you know, and me, she rest in peace was, was just an, an amazing person and feminist and champion for all kinds of, of justice. And I, you know, she was just great. Um, Mimi, definitely a feminist. I mean, very concerned with women's rights, very concerned with women's equality and safety. You know, we had these debates over, you know, what's now known in kind of professorly circles as, as carceral feminism or feminism that is mostly dedicated now, to... What, that word, you use it a lot in your book. And yes. I went to CU Law, I'm out of Harvard Law. What does carceral mean? Carceral, carceral didn't really exist in the parlance um, when I was in law school. So carceral just means related to incarceration and all the sort of things in adjacent to the criminal nice. legal system. Probation. So, right. So they, they don't say like just like punishment or sentences because carceral is supposed to recognize like all of the systemic factors, all the disabilities that being system involved can give you. So that's known as the carceral state, right? All the ways in which the criminal law is is, is managing people through um, jailing them or the threat of jailing them. So incarceration centric is Got carceral. It. And then it, it was in 2007 or nine that a sociologist at Columbia, Elizabeth Bernstein, um, coined this term carceral feminism. And she did it on the basis of there being increasingly writing sort of pushing back on that, you know, 1980s through early aughts revolution in feminism where they really were successful in getting a lot of these sentences raised and a lot of the mandatory arrest policies and, you know, just like a lot of reforms um, in the criminal justice system that they were also, I mean, her article was about international law, exporting to other countries and, you know, just sort of feminism putting their justice eggs in the prosecutorial basket, right? Like a criminal law a punishment basket rather than maybe like, you know, giving women more job right, opportunities. And now so, you're dumping the basket and all the eggs are getting Exactly. Scrambled. But, you know, that... That was an amazing change. Actually, her carceral feminism article cites my original article that I wrote like a while ago, like many years ago, on, you know, the problem with mandatory arrests and DV courts that, that you know, Jamal in my book is adopted from that article, is adopted from, a, a you know, a case I had when I was a public defender. But like the, the you know, at least in feminist circles, right, in feminist sort of academic circles, the coining of this term carceral, carceral feminism was really a watershed moment because now there is this idea that like feminism is many things and can pick many ways to be, to manifest. And this was just in the most punitive ways. So that was interesting, but just back to Mimi for one second. So we would have these debates over like, you know, how to be a feminist. And so you know, she would not agree with my point of view on it. And that's totally fair. And I think you can be a feminist by, you know, really like appreciating and being um, influenced by powerful women. But at the same time, there are a lot of non-feminist women. Like it was in the 80s 
women who spearheaded the family values movement that women shouldn't be working and they should have a lot of kids and the men should be the, you know, head of the household and, you know, women's place was in the kitchen. It, it, you know, that movement, which I would see as kind of anti-feminist was spearheaded by women. So I know it. And that's why I always thought when I took con law from Nagel, wow, he was a great professor in con law. It got me thinking about, well, why is it more suspect to racially discriminate than to gender discriminate? And one difference to me is a lot of the opposition to women's rights comes from other women. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I think that constitutional history, you know, we can put in the perspective that, well, you know, people still kind of, you know, like to say that women and men are are different and, you know, like a woman could never do this like a man or the, you know, the working in the fire department or whatever. So, I mean, I, I think that those have a different history. But remember, there can be, you know, prominent African-Americans against affirmative action, you know, Correct. exhibit A, Clarence Thomas. Right. So it's not, you know. But I, but I think there's larger numbers of women who align themselves with causes that you would not agree with. Look, you, you talked about getting quoted in that uh, thing about uh, carceral, what's the word, carceral uh, by Bernstein? Carceral feminism. Anyway, yeah, carceral feminism. I'm sorry. See, I'm not going to be a good feminist. But you quote a Canaan study out of Purdue, and this guy happened to quote me, and uh, I was aware of him, and then Brown Miller. And the subject is, what is the rate of reporting of false sex assaults? I'm sorry to change the subject a little bit. During Kobe Bryant, and now I want to get to kind of big names like Kobe Bryant, when he got arrested in Colorado, were you here at that time? Um, I was not here, so I followed it from afar. Um, Well, I got to commentate on it, and I said things like rape is an abomination, so it's a false accusation of rape. And I sat through that preliminary hearing, and I didn't think it was a good case, and uh, I wrote about it. I didn't think it should be filed. And along the way, you know, Canaan stats get quoted, and then you've got feminists, really women that you might be aligned with saying, no, there are no false claims of sex assault, or if it does exist, it's about 2%. And I said any big city prosecutor or uh, sex assault detective would tell you that it's a lot higher than that, and it's a complicated subject, why women make these claims, and uh, nobody really wants to write about it because I think you might get canceled Am I on to something? Yeah, I um, I would say that the Keenan study, which was of 150 cases in one town, and it found like upwards of 40% were false accusations, has a lot of problems. Um, you know, what they were counting as false was based on police officers kind of saying they were unfounded. And so it it was a problematic study, small sample size. And, you know, then, you know, you had FBI statistics that said 8% of rape claims were unfounded. Again, that had its own problems because unfounded does not necessarily mean untrue. 
Um, then you had Susan Brown Miller's famous statistic, which is kind of out of whole cloth, that only 2% of rape claims are false accusations. That's ridiculous. Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, 2% versus 40%. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm convinced by uh, the studies that false accusations of 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 rape are probably somewhere between five and ten percent, maybe twelve. Um, okay, so that's what it is. And you know what? You mentioned them in your book. I'm going to bring them up now. But I think about twenty to thirty percent of the accusations against Donald Trump for sexual improprieties are probably not true. So that leaves the other sixty to seventy percent, and. I think we've got a sex offender who was our former president and, God forbid, our future president. You wrote about him a bit in your book, and I thought it was powerful, especially as you pointed out what he said when he descended that escalator the fateful day he announced he was going to run. The Mexicans are rapists? Yeah, uh, Mexicans are rapists. So this has a long history, and and let me just say one more thing about false rape statistics. I think, you know, one of the reasons why feminists were so insistent that we have to hashtag believe all women was because of the belief that most rape accusations were, of, or, or their belief that society widely be- disbelieved women, right? That society presumed women to be liars. And so they thought it was really important to combat that set of beliefs, you know, and, and make people understand, no, it's not easy to make up a rape claim. Like, look, if I don't like my neighbor, I guess I could make up that he's selling, you know, meth out of his house and I could go to the police and say it, but people don't generally do that stuff. But if you had an affair (laughs) with the neighbor and your husband found out and you needed to explain, oh no, he raped me, that's more probable scenario. No, I mean, no, that, Look, say my neighbor is like torturing me. Like, I really hate this person. There's no sex in it, but I really hate this person. I can go make up a crime about him, but like, I'm going to have to go through the whole thing of lying about a crime. And it's not something that it's easy to do or that people do, especially if you're going to make up a sex crime, then you've got to go through all the sex stuff. So I just, I think the logic that it's really easy for women to make up claims of rape is just logic that is is suspect to me and the statistics show like you know there's most people who come in the criminal system and sit on a witness stand are telling the truth some aren't most are right like most people are i agree willing to go up and just lie right like some do when they have a big motive to lie but most don't so the idea that a woman would go in to the police and just like make up a lie because you're going to gain something about it. Like that's not going to happen. Like common sense tells you that's not going to happen often. So for the feminists, and here's where I, I'm, I'm going to depart with them in a second. It was really important for them to send the message to society that like, no, it's not easy to make up a rape and no women don't just lie all the time. Now I personally think they believed society believed that more than society did because the statistics show that once rape cases made it to trial, you know, they ended in convictions like 97% of the time, just like other violent felonies. Like people sitting at council table charged with a sex offense, you know, juries don't like them. 
right? Juries might also be suspect of the victim, but they don't like the, the they don't like the person charged either. And so some studies showed, you know, like jurors' opinions of the various parties, victim or defendant in these cases, um, and who they were more prejudiced against depended on the specific characters of the person. So if the guy seems creepy and like a sex offender and, you know, doesn't look right and this and that, they, they could have, you know, a big prejudice again. They're going to believe anything a woman says. If on the other hand, the woman like violates, you know, the standards for appropriate female behavior, then they're not going to like her. So, so like, I get what the, feminists were doing when they were saying, okay, you know, um, you know, we got to push back on this notion that women lie. But on the other hand, it sort of led to this hashtag believe women situation where it's like, you know, women never lie about rape. And if you're a defense attorney and you even question anything, you're like this big sexist. Well, how can a person ever have a defense, right? And now, again, we're talking in Colorado about lifetime supervision. How can a person ever have a defense if the attitude is you become basically an aider and a better of a rapist if you even question a victim's story? Um, you know, what is the option for defendants? They just have to go, yep, I was accused, then I did it. So I think, you know, it's more com it's more complex than that. I think that... Women probably don't lie. And the funny thing is, there's never comparative stories. I just think that people don't generally make up crimes. You know, I think, you know, it sometimes happened and you can find the motive. But, you know, it is a defendant's right and a defense attorney's job to say, like, what are the possibilities that this is a lie? And I think increasingly in the anti-rape culture, there's pushback on that. When you were talking about a guy sitting at a council table, I was thinking about Justice Kavanaugh. I told you there's the big name portion. What did you think of that situation? And especially with the new revelations that the FBI did nothing with respect to tips, including Stan Garnett, who represented a woman uh, who said he did. Uh, he exposed himself at Yale Law School. I mean, right. And, and that woman, you know, and the other one um, who actually was publicized and it turns out her accusation was actually suspect. The, the third one. Oh, you yeah. Know, they she were, was terrible. She was brought yeah. forth by uh, the attorney who's now in jail. Michael Cohen. No, not Michael no. Cohen. Um, the other one, the one who won for president. The guy um, who CNN wanted to be president. No. Right. What was the guy's I'll name? I'll think uh, of it. I'll think yeah, of it. Yeah, I know. How quickly. Yeah. Forget. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah. So, and I think that really, you know, did a lot of damage to, you know, Christine Blasey Ford's claim and Deborah Ramirez's claims, which seemed very credible, right? <laughs> like, like, why would they put themselves through this for a lie? You know, that's just crazy. Like, Michael national... Avenatti, and I didn't look My, it up. Yes, anyway, Avenatti, right. exactly. Avenatti. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, like, this goes back to your Trump point, which is, I think there's no reason to question um, particularly these women's accounts. Like, his excuse for one of them was, well, look at her. She's not pretty enough for me to sexual assault. I'm like, okay, like, as a defense attorney, that's kind of an admission. <laughs> you know, like, Correct. I would sexual assault somebody who's pretty. Exhibit A, my tape with Billy Bush. 
Um, so I, I think that part of this hashtag believe all women and being very sort of disciplinary and, and, and carceral in the me too and prosecutorial in the me too moment has to do with this sense that here's this guy, Trump or people like Kavanaugh, where these, there are these credible allegations and you know, they're all but immune from anything. Like as, as a lawyer, I'm sure you looked at Kavanaugh's performance at that hearing and thought, wow, this is, this, this is not becoming to a judge, even just the way he's reacting. It worked though. It worked. And if you are accused of a crime you didn't commit, then I don't blame somebody for being full of righteous indignation. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go. You know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Exactly. It, um... It, it didn't seem like that to me. It seemed like, um, you know, I, I mean, it's possible it didn't happen, but it paints a picture of somebody. And it seems like somebody who had gotten away with a lot of perhaps not criminal behavior, um, perhaps criminal behavior. If, you know, Christine Blasey Ford's memory of that night is like completely accurate, but it paints a picture of somebody who, you know, had engaged in behavior that at least you could say, um, maybe this person shouldn't be on the Supreme Court. Um, and, you know, it's all coming out now, and it's stuff that happened decades ago. Um, and, you know, he doesn't like it. I get that, you know, but it's, um, I don't know. I, I guess I just didn't have that impression. And I, and I think it did work because I think it tapped into two things, and this is what feminists are rightly so upset about. 
this idea of Trump or other powerful men who people like politically, and you could say this on the left or the right, you can say it about Clinton, you could say it about then like being totally uh, immune from the repercussions of their bad to criminal sexual behavior. Um, and the second thing is, you know, and they're tapping into this sort of righteous male anger. I'm the real victim here. And so I think those two things led feminists to be really outraged in the Trump era, in the moment of Me Too. But the interesting thing then is they're doubling down on this tough on crime, sort of expanding the penal state uh, in a way that's still not going to affect these powerful men that are immune from repercussions. They're going to affect the quote unquote usual suspects, right? The people who are caught up in the system for various reasons. And, you know, and I think that that's really interesting to juxtapose, you know, Trump was also outraged at rapists who he defined as Mexicans, right? And so expanding this rape punishments and outrage and believe the victims, like we can imagine that it's going to get a, the Trumps and have some accountability for powerful people who are entrenched in politics. But, you know, it might, you know, and I say, again, I say this to progressive feminists, it might also affect men of color. And we all know there is a long history of men of color being absolutely terrorized by anti-rape laws and sentiments, like in the post-Reconstruction era South, where it was a um, kind of epidemic of lynching. It was a, a right. big excuse for, for Reconstruction era lynching. Emmett Till, a host of others. And uh, while we're on the Supreme Court, heck, I thought about the Supreme Court the most when I went to law school, and I went after Roe v. Wade, so it was already law, but... I think it's going bye-bye, and Kavanaugh is probably a vote that way. We've got the Texas abortion law, and the thing that ties into what you talk about in your fine book, I see an infantilizing of women, like in domestic violence cases. Well, we don't really need to hear from you, ma'am, because we know you're an abused woman, and we're going to take care of you whether you want it or not. And, and that's part of it, but on the abortion law, they all have the chutzpah to say, okay, it's like murder and we're going to punish everybody involved, including the Uber driver, but we're not going to punish the woman because this poor woman, she doesn't understand. She doesn't know what she's doing. Are you kidding me? My sister, I'm not saying she ever had an abortion, but are you? I mean, women are smart. What do you mean they can't make a decision? And Why can't you go there if you really want to criminalize this stuff? So react to that. Well, I think you can't criminalize the women right off the bat, you, you know, uh, because it would be unconstitutional to do so. Um, and also it would be bad political strategy because you're sort of right. criminalizing perhaps the most sympathetic party. Um, and, you know, the, these are massive strategies. This is, you know, what uh, we might call strategery on yes. the part of the, you know, anti-choice people. And but isn't really it condescending to women? To not put them in jail? No, just I, you know, to I say would... that, oh, you poor young thing, you are confused, you're not culpable the way a man would be. 
It just seems ironic that a female Uber driver could be punished, but the woman who's thought about it and said, yeah, I want to terminate my pregnancy, they're not going to go after her because they know if they did, the game would be up. Nobody would put up with it. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Let's see what happens with the Mississippi case. Because once abortion is, you know, once you're allowed to do whatever you want, um, states are going to do it. And, and you will see the criminalization of women. I, know I mean, it. you already see it. But, in, but you in, think in, they'll start locking up women? Yes. Oh, absolutely. They will lock up women. And it won't be the college students who have the means to fly to the states to get an abortion. It'll be like the women who they're locking up on under fetal protection laws, poor people, substance abuse, you know, people who are in domestic violence relationships. It's going to be the women who are the most vulnerable, the most in need of help among us are going to land where so many vulnerable people land under, you know, the logic that has reigned supreme that, um, you know, there's no place for government in lives, except when we spend massive amount of money to lock people up. They're going to land where vulnerable people land, in jail. No, it's really something. I wrote in the Colorado Sun, I'm a, the columnist at large there, about the late Bob Enyart, who was 100% against abortion, and he advocated execution for women who suffered an abortion. And he felt so strongly about it that he said because COVID vaccines were developed through use of fetal this or fetal that. He would not take a vaccine, but he would take your donations. And he passed away of COVID. May he rest in peace. But at least he, he, he had the courage of his convictions and he died for it. And he would have executed women for having an abortion. And this guy had a following. Look, you cannot, it's very hard to convince people of something that they're dug into. But I question what his conviction was, because if you look at the possibility of um, abortion, and especially in cases, not just of rape and incest, but like, think about it this way. There are many people that I know and many people in this world who, if abortion wasn't a possibility, would never conceive to begin with. People who've had like genetic issues in their history, um, people who are older, people who, if you look back, their first abortion would have either, I mean, their first pregnancy would have either put them in a financial position to never be able to have other kids. I mean, if you take away abortion, nobody ever looks at it, how many babies won't be born right. because you took away that option. I do. So it really makes me think that this, and, you know, the babies that are forced to be abor uh, born because you don't have abortion, like, they can die of malnutrition and poverty and misery because nobody's working on that. So it makes me think the movement isn't really about maximizing life because, you know, they're kind of against IVF and things like that too, which, you know, uh, bring life into world, the world, like my daughter's life, you know, my daughter would not exist, but for reproductive technology and the possibility that if it goes wrong, you know, and there's massive, defects, um, you know, abortion is on the table. I and mean, that's just like sort of a personal connection I have to it. But it makes me think that nobody's thinking about all the women who wouldn't have children if abortion weren't an option or who were forced to have their first baby like really young when they couldn't have it. And it messed with their body because they were a teenager 
or it messed with their prospects of ever having children in the future because they never could get to a stable situation. Um, and I totally agree. About that. You are preaching to the choir, but I'm afraid Roe v. Wade is going away and abortion will be a top issue in every legislative race. And I think that uh, the Democrats will gain even more power in Colorado, but God knows what's going to happen in Mississippi and Alabama. It's just part of this sort of civil war we have where it's racial and it has to do with the way we treat women. You've been so generous with your time, Professor Aya Gruber, but I'm curious about you. Uh, when you write about discrimination that you've experienced, you talk about as a woman, as an Asian, as a survivor. I, I, I don't know if you've written about being a survivor, but it, it made me curious. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, um, there are a lot of women who've um, experienced sexual misconduct to sexual violence. And like you said, you know, levels of trauma are often indeterminate. They can be inversely related. Like sometimes if you have a violent stranger rape, it can cause a lot of trauma. If, you know, the person had a knife to somebody's throat, you know, that can cause a lot of PTSD, certainly. But in some cases where you have sort of a, a forcible rape that is undeniable, there can be less trauma than a person who's, you know, in a date rape situation where their trauma is related to feeling like they contributed to it or they should have done more about it. Um, so I think a lot of women have experienced sexual violence on a range, you know, um, from, you know, just conduct that really shouldn't have happened to to, buy, to, you know, sort of force and threat. And, you know, I think you can still think about the state of the world and what's fair policy. You know, you can think about it both from an insider and an outsider perspective. You can think about it both as a woman and as a minority and as a survivor or just as a law professor, and I think that's all valid. I've noticed increasingly, though, I've had to say that because when I'm a critic of on the grounds that I don't think it's good policy, don't think it's particularly good for women, and I think it contributes to what I consider to be terrible governance structure and oppressive mass incarceration, I critique these feminist policies. And many of them say, well, that's because you're not, uh, because you don't know anything about victimhood. And, you know, I, I don't, I think that these arguments from identity, like, who you are makes your argument valid or not. I don't really love them. I think you can take that into account. You know, people call it situated knowledge or lived experience. And I don't think it's invalid that that contributes, but I don't think that's the measure that should be the measure of whether what you're saying is persuasive or researched or, or truth. So so it, it's been a little bit weird for me to increasingly have to kind of take out victimhood bona fides to be able to comment on these issues. Um, but, but that's been the case. No, it's fascinating. And I think it adds to your book because, I don't know, maybe you can tell me, do you feel like you've experienced discrimination based on being a woman, being an Asian, <laughs> being a survivor, or I mean, which which afflicts you, or it doesn't afflict you, but causes you to be victimized. 
Oh, I have suffered from horrific sexual harassment uh, as a woman and as an Asian woman. Like the comments about Asian women that I've gotten, the, the surprise that my voice sounds like it does because I'm Asian. You know, these like presumptions that my parent, that my mother was like a comfort woman in the war. And that's how she, you know, came to marry my father. And I'm some like exotic love child of a geisha. It's, <laughs> I could regale you um, with stories of this. Uh, I am, you know, when I was a, a young lawyer, I was always mistaken, even to the point where when I was a federal defender being in court and somebody thought I was the drug dealer's girlfriend. I mean, I was constantly mistaken for everybody but the lawyer. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. Um, I would regard that as an advantage. What? I, I mean, maybe you were advantaged that, that people thought you weren't, you know, a cookie-cutter lawyer. They soon found out. I bet you were really good at your job. And I'd love to have you as a professor. What is, What classes do you teach up there? So I teach criminal law, criminal procedure investigation, and a seminar where we really delve into how the media and law and, you know, culture um, marshals images of people who are accused of crimes and people who are, you know, um, victims or sort of alleged victims of crimes and and really delving into images of criminals, including sex offenders, who is, um, you know, acting in self-defense, just what we think of various, what, what sort of images are triggered when we think of various, quote unquote, criminals, offenders, and victims. I think you'd be um, a great professor. Yeah, I'd love to have you. And I have taken a lot oh, of your time. I really recommend the book, The Feminist War on Crime, The Unexpected Role of Women's Liberation and Mass Incarceration. It was outstanding, and you thanked a lot of people, including the CU Law Library, and I was thinking about that. And the picture of Ira Rothgerber, I hope it's still there. The eyes kind of follow you around, and you're the Rothgerber chair. But what do people do with that big library anymore? I mean... Isn't it all on your laptop? Well, you know, the students love going to the library space to study, and there's nothing like the, the you know, reading a book, book. I mean, I do have a Kindle paperwhite, and I get a lot of the, the you know, stuff on it. But I do, you know, there is something about reading things in hard copy. And I do, you know, I know it's really probably not great for the environment, but, you know, I do make students print out cases and readings so that, that they can have them out when we talk about them in class. Um, because I just think that is, you know, scrolling through computers and stuff, there's something that you can't get the same way as a book. So the I CU totally library is agree. still great. When I had a big project, yeah. I, I would go up to the CU Law Library. Love that place. Of course, that was in the old Fleming Law Building, but the Wolf Building is outstanding. You're an outstanding professor, can't thank you enough for being in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Professor Aya Gruber, you are really a unique person, and I expect you to do great things. You already have done it, but we expect more. Well, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to speak to you. My honor. Thanks. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye.
Wow, when you've been practicing law for almost 40 years like me, you learn a thing or two. If you have a legal problem, give me a call, 303-861-2800. At Springer and Steinberg, we do all kinds of law. Call me, 303-861-2800. We will help solve your problem. Thank you. Hey, did I tell you we were going to have a great show? We sure did. But before we go, we have to chronicle our times, and here's a contest I like to call First Worst. First Worst is a contest to see which Trump supporter can be the worst person of the week or the month. Let's make it for the month of October. John Eastman has to be in the running. For one, he's represented by Randy Corcoran. Is that right? Wow. We watched him in courtroom 424 as his case got thrown out before it could even get a hearing because he didn't follow preliminary rules to the detriment of nine cops who got fired. Anyway, good luck with this, John Eastman. John Eastman, who was part of the coup, it was all coordinated, including the people like Jenna Ellis who needed to talk later. I'm going to get back to Jenna Ellis. But John Eastman tried to help Trump steal the presidency. And then he tried to back away from it in an article in National Review, but a brilliant Twitter investigator went up to him at Claremont, pretended to be a supporter, and she got these admissions by this dirty lawyer, John Eastman. We're huge Trump supporters, and we were actually at January 6th. Oh, yeah. We saw your Should speech. I, your speech. Should I incite you to go down to the Capitol and riot? You actually incited us to become supporters of Claremont. Oh, good. Very yeah. good. Very good. Because, you know, and the work that you're doing is just so critical to saving our democracy. Thank and it was you. like, we couldn't not support your work after that. Okay. Well, thank you very much. That's very yeah. kind of you. So, thank you. You're, you're really doing the Lord's work. Well, and I, you know, uh, that's my old, I, you heard me say it. My old professor said, if you're not catching incoming flack, you're not over the target. And my God, I must be directly over. I I don't think there's anybody catch as much incoming flack maybe than other than Trump himself that I have over the last six months. I mean, it's amazing. Well, but I read your memo and I thought it was solid in all of its legal arguments. I just, I was floored that that Mike Pence didn't do anything. I mean, why didn't he act on it? Because you gave him the legal reasoning to do that. I know, I know. And now, in in a piece in The Atlantic two days ago, they're already anticipating Trump winning in 2024, and they're using my arguments from that memo that they all said had no credibility to argue that Kamala Harris can block Trump's electoral votes. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like, I mean, come on, people, you can't... Basically, everyone's going to say, you're being proven right. Yeah, exactly, exactly, except they're not saying that, right? <laughs> but that's what they mean. Yeah, exactly, like, exactly. all of your legal reasoning is totally solid. Yeah, yeah, it, there's no question, but... Uh, but I mean, like, you know, this supporter to supporter, like, why do you think that Mike Pence didn't do it? Well, because Mike Pence is an establishment guy at the end of the day, and... 
the establishment Republicans in D.C. bought into this very myopic view that Trump was destroying the Republican Party. And what Trump was doing is destroying the inside the Beltway Republican Party and reviving the Republican Party in the hinterland, right? What they all consider the, you know, deplorable flyover country. And this uprising that Trump got ahead of, he, he didn't create the movement. The movement was there, and he saw it and got ahead of it. Um, but no, that's, they can't tolerate that because they all, they all have nice, cushy livings inside the Beltway. Oh, thank you, Lauren Windsor, citizen investigator Lauren Windsor, who puts on a little bit of a southern lilt, pretends to be a Trumpster, gets damning admissions. Damning admissions. And Mike Pence is still rolling over for Trump, as are all the responsible people in the Republican Party. Responsible for the Republican Party, but acting irresponsibly for America, And now most people in their party think the election was rigged. Goodbye, democracy. And it's thanks to guys like Ted Cruz. He's got to be up there for first worst. Man, he's terrible. Brings up Nazism again. These guys seem fixated. Listen to Ted Cruz as he belittles and interrogates our timid Attorney General Merrick Garland. What a disappointment he was just sitting there. At some point, he should have raised his voice to these senators, but that's just me. I think my voice is a little raised. Let's hear from Ted Cruz. How many incidents are cited in that memo? I have to look back through the memo. I can't count it. You don't know. How many of them were violent? Again, the, the general report. How many of them were violent? Do you know? I don't know. You don't know. And there's a reason you don't know. Because you didn't care and nobody in your office cared to find out. I did a quick count just sitting here during this hearing. I counted 20 incidents cited. Of the 20, 15 on their face are nonviolent. They involve things like insults. They involve a Nazi salute. That's one of the examples. My God. A parent did a Nazi salute at a school board because he thought the, the, the policies were oppressive. General Garland is doing a Nazi salute at an elected official. Is that protected by the First Amendment? Yes, it is. Okay. A great point to make, Ted Cruz. You're defending everybody's right to give Nazi salutes. Good for you, Teddy. That attitude, man, it's aggressive, it's mean. I've watched a lot of Joe Altman on Conservative Daily and on his Facebook Live, same sort of kind of threatening, real loud, hey, let's we're going to have a fight, sort of tone of voice. Listen to Tom Cotton, another lawyer on the Senate Judiciary Committee, aimed this at Merrick Garland, who was a federal district court judge. His appointment to the Supreme Court got kiboshed by guys like Tom Cotton following Mitch McConnell. But listen to Tom Cotton and tell me if you don't think he's first worst in my contest. That letter and those reports were the basis for your... Do- no, this, this no, is, Senator. This is that's wrong. Shameful. Judge, that's, this is shameful. This, here, this testimony, your directive, your performance is shameful. Okay. That's not... Th- cr- thank God you are not on the Supreme Court. You that, should resign in disgrace, Judge. You should resign in disgrace. And Merrick Garland's eyes popped up, but he didn't fire back by saying, man, you are way out of line. And you are just trying to make a point for the Virginia governor's race because you think that parents of kids 
who are mad about masks should have a right to do whatever they want, including Nazi salutes. And maybe the people of Virginia are with you, but this fake outrage for political purposes. Anyway, I don't like Tom Cotton, but here is the first worst winner. Chuck Grassley, 88 years old, running for another term in Iowa and sacrificing any good feelings I ever had for the man. Earlier this month, he did the most despicable thing I've seen in modern memory, and he admitted to it. He sold his soul to the company store, the company being the Republican Party, the store, of course, Donald Trump, who controls the Republican Party. And at 88, he wants to keep going, and he realizes the only way he can is to embrace the man embraced by 91% of Iowa Republicans. How about using your good common sense and the brain God gave you before wears out, Mr. Grassley, and say, I'm not going to put up with this crap from Donald Trump. It's not right. I'm going to impose him to my dying breath, which could be soon, because I've run my race. But instead, he conscripts the rest of us to have to be in Trump's world. Because once he gets the nomination, which it looks like he will, it could be over for America because he will contest everything. Nobody will believe in elections anymore. Everybody will hate each other. And Chuck Grassley... He just thinks about the Senate primary, and he is my first worst as he got on stage with Donald Trump and the two had this interchange. I'm thrilled to announce tonight that Senator Chuck Grassley has my complete and total endorsement for re-election, Chuck. I, I I was born at night, but not last night. So if I didn't accept the endorsement of a person that's got 91% of the re- Republican voters in Iowa, I wouldn't be too smart. I'm smart enough to accept that endorsement. Wow. That's how a country gets sold out right there. And by people who have radio microphones who use it to advance this big lie and to stop this deal. And boy, am I disappointed in some people I know, Denver Trump Radio. And I did radio with Dan Kaplis. We speak of each other fondly. We're the adversary. I remember when he said Donald Trump was the last choice out of the 17 for him. I understood it. He thought that Trump would be weak on abortion, but he's given Dan Kaplis what he wants, three Supreme Court justices about to make that Supreme Court overturn Roe v. Wade. But my God, in the process, what we've done to the country is torn apart. And it started in November, right after the election, when Trump who coordinated every inch of it before, during, after. And I'm talking about before the election, he said it was going to be rigged. And then the fake, oh, my God, what happened in Pennsylvania? We went to bed and it changed. Yeah, we all knew it would because Democrats voted by mail. And there was a law that those wouldn't be counted till the next day. Everybody said it. Yet Trump and his troops feign ignorance as that happened in Pennsylvania and other states. Everything's 
a conspiracy to them. And it's led to over half, well over half of Republican voters, probably 95% of talk radio listeners, believe that the election was rigged against Donald Trump when there's no evidence of that. Court cases have said otherwise. Brave Republicans have said otherwise. Scott McGinnis came on my show last week to ridicule Tina Peters, who's caught up in this Trump cult. But I expect more of some people I know. And I knew Jenna Ellis. She disappoints me. Thank God for that Dan Kaplis challenge that she and I could debate on his show. I'll play that again. But listen to my aggravation with my old partner, Dan, way back in mid-November, as on 710KNUS, Joe Oltman held forth with Peter Boyles and Randy Corcoran and Deb Flora, and everybody was talking about Dominion from that perspective. Jen Ellis had free run of it over there on KHOW, where she's treated like she's some genius. Really? Don't I remember the relationship between Jenna and everybody else back at 710 KNUS? I do. Don't I remember Jenna Ellis and her relationships with various teaching institutions and in the practice of law? Anyway, I want to debate her on the merits. Dan Kaplis put her up as some paragon of integrity, and yet my name came up as a worthy challenger, and I accept Here's what got me off, and I never bug my old radio partners, my current radio partners, whatever. I don't bug them about topics. I get to choose what I talk about. They get to choose what they do. But I saw right away where this big lie was going. I could see violence and the end of democracy, and unfortunately, I've been proven right. I've written about it. I've talked about it. It's the reason I'm here. I know this Dominion lie is going to be exposed in court if we can get to it, and the genesis and the coordination. And this is what I heard on November 16, 2020, critical days on KHOW. And again, my name came up, so of course I was interested. And it's why I communicated to Dan, please don't give any oxygen to this big lie. Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis really aren't credible lawyers. Neither was Rudy Giuliani. I tried to make that point, but here's what I heard. November 16, 2020, afternoon on 630 KHOW, Dan Kaplis talking about whether the election was rigged or not. And he starts by playing Maria Bartiromo, which is interesting because back in the day, Kaplis and Silverman, we would have the money, honey, on. That was the name she liked. She was popular. She seemed reasonable. Who knew she was going to go full Trumpster on us? But she has. And she's not a credible reporter anymore. In my opinion, listen to this sound from the Dan Kaplis show. It starts with Maria Bartiromo. And then we get to Dan and uh, I think his producer, Ryan Schuling, and they talk about me. And by the way, I don't remember Pennsylvania results being questioned on the air or off the air. I just don't remember any of that bullshit back then. And I was there broadcasting with Dan and Kirk Whitland was there, who turned out to be a neo-Nazi producer. Did you see the evidence against him? This is the environment 
on these radio stations. I thought he was just mega maga, but you can Google it. Kirk Woodland, neo-Nazi, KNUS. But this wasn't on KNUS right now. Dan is talking about Stepan Cahow, another place where I worked for the better part of a decade. Dominion voting machines were used in Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. And I have a graphic showing the, the states where they stopped counting, uh, which I thought was also strange to stop counting in the middle of election night. Can anybody remember that? I'm sure there's an isolated instance here or there. But, uh, but Ryan, as you know, from the, the very first show after the election, mm-hmm. that was my biggest complaint. Yep. Is that we're not used to seeing that. And then especially when Trump's rolling before they stop, you have to laugh or you'll cry. And then when they start again, it's like he's falling off a cliff. Well, the explanations that we've been given in the various swing states where this happened have been varied. You look at Georgia, I think a pipe burst or something in Atlanta, right? That was the explanation we were given i don't know about the others at detroit philadelphia milwaukee you know if those were just well, there, what was the reason given? it could be coincidence yeah. could there could be a totally innocent explanation i'm just saying that that you know of course that's going to get your attention I, I remember all the way back in 16 and i was covering election night with craig and all of a sudden things were turning well for the president in pennsylvania and i think i actually said on air if it wasn't on air it was during a break to craig i said man as excited as i want to get <laughs> This is Pennsylvania. This is Philadelphia. If the president's up 50,000 votes, they'll find 60,000 somewhere. And and I think what happened in 16 as a practical matter, I mean, if there was the cheating in Pennsylvania this time around that's being alleged, then I think what probably happened in 16 is that nobody expected him to win. I mean, other than me and a relative handful of other people, and of course, you know, you and the people who voted for him, but, but, but he wasn't expected to win. So if you had this widespread fraud in, in Philadelphia and maybe other parts of Pennsylvania this time around, I think that would be the explanation for why it didn't happen last time around. They didn't think they had to, but my mind's still open on whether there was this kind of widespread fraud in Pennsylvania. I know the allegations, the allegations in Pennsylvania, the administration has brought are serious and and need to be aired. They need to get to the bottom of it. (laughs) Uh, One source says that the key point to understand is that the Smartmatic system has a back door that allows it to be, that allows the votes to be mirrored and monitored, allowing an intervening party a real-time understanding of how many votes will be needed to gain an electoral advantage. Are you saying the states that use that software did that? Well, I know I can prove that they did it in Michigan. And we'll get to that Michigan um, whistleblower in a second. The administration says they have. But but listen, I think I said it the day after the election, as I was sitting at home watching these results and understand through the goggles of someone who just desperately wants the president to win, but but also very suspicious of the left, not Democrats, the left, because we know that the left will stop at nothing now. We, we know that the left doesn't care about the law. They don't care about truth. They don't care about anything. You know, the hardcore left that runs the Democratic Party. So as I'm sitting at home and all of a sudden you're seeing the counting stop, I'm just telling you, the first thing that went through my mind, I don't know if it was a lawyer thing or just a human thing, was, wait a second, are they trying to figure out how many votes they need? I mean, you know, which is not proof of fraud, but that's what's going through my mind. Are they trying to figure out how many votes they need at this point? Is that why it stopped? I don't know if the answer is yes or no, but I, I think we need to get to the bottom of it. 
Gosh, that's disappointing. Really, the left will stop at nothing. And if they need 50,000 votes in Pennsylvania, they'd get 60. I want to debate Jen Ellis. Thank you to Dan Kaplis for giving me this wonderful opportunity. Jen, if you are listening, I've accepted. I put it on Twitter. Let's do it. I think that Trump's big lie is coming out of your mouth and a lot of other people's, and it's ruining America, and I want to talk about it with you. Here's the great offer that I got earlier this month on the Dan Kaplan Show. Here's what I'm leading up to. All of these snipers and snarkers taking their shots at Jenna Ellis, I will pay, I will fund it, I will underwrite it to see you debate Jenna Ellis on a topic of your choice. And all I suggest is that you write your will in, in advance, right? Can you imagine any of these people who snipe at Jenna Ellis debating her publicly on anything? Pick your topic. It's a, yeah, it's she a lot easier wipe to the take floor hot shots. with them. Yeah. But but I'm I'm just being honest about it. She would wipe the floor with them. So the challenge is out there. Any of the snipers, the snarkers, the Jenna critics, and again, she and I have had some knockdown dragouts on air where we've disagreed about things. But any of those out there who are calling her names, doubt her abilities as a lawyer or whatever, we will give you this radio show as a forum. We'll make a contribution to the charity of your choice. Let's have the debate. Come on this radio show and debate Jenna on anything you want to. Think we'll have any takers on that, Ryan? Well, I mean, there might be a, a few. Really? Uh, uh, that, okay. Uh, who do you think would take us up on that? Craig Silverman. Oh, I'd love to have Craig come on. <laughs> could you imagine? And you know Brother Craig. I mean, yeah, could you imagine? so many good memories in this studio. <laughs> so there it is. Let's see if that debate happens. I do have my papers in order with Michael Bailey. That's a good thing. Gosh, Dave Gunders was great with Nikki's latest song. Can I get it out of my head? It's so beautiful and haunting, and it's got all the Gunders elements. Sarah Gunders singing background. It's so nice to make the acquaintance of Professor Aya Gruber. Fascinating person. See you law school. Help shape people. I'm shaped by this show and current events, my column. Most importantly, my work as a lawyer. And I love my friends. Thank you to all my friends who helped me. I appreciate you so much. Dave Gunders, what a good friend. Taught me how to make an apple pie. We're going to do it again. And before we leave, listen, and then go watch on YouTube. Our troubadour, Dave Gunders, talking about cattails as we take our walk with our dogs. Have a great week. Bye. Here we are in Eastman in beautiful Cherry Hills Village when we have discovered a phenomenon that Dave Gunders, our troubadour, will now explain to the world. So these are cattails. I've always liked cattails. They're the habitat for the red-winged blackbird and probably a lot of other things too. But one thing I've noticed, it's late. Here we are at the end of October and they're spreading their seed, right? And I just took a little tuft little tuft of the top and examined it and as you pull it apart there are scores of seeds just in this small just in this small this small bit 
that, what, that shames a dandelion. And I began to, to count, I mean, you know, how many seeds might be, I dare say there could be a quarter of a million seeds in, the, in this pod. Look at that, oh, it just oh. exploded. That's cool. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.